0: This is PolyOptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. PolyOptics, the only show of its kind on the air today. And it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today we're focusing on the critical role the White House press secretaries play, men and women on the front lines of polyoptics. Our special guests, Joe Lockhart, press secretary to President Bill Clinton, and Ari Fleischer, first press secretary to President George W. Bush, and the man behind the podium during the 9-11 period. I am joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. I encourage you to check out that site and join the conversation. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, and it is great to have you here.
2: Adam, thank you very much. There's so much that we can talk about, not only this week, but in the weeks going forward. This show is really uh, about our passion, about what we do,
1: and how we view Uh, The bright lights of political theater and what goes on in the formative stages of bringing all of these events and important
2: statements and the imagery around politics to the American people. You know, once you've been in it, you can never uh, leave it. So when I sit at home and watch the news and watch President Obama or uh, other candidates posturing on the stump. You can't help but avoid having been in the White House for six years, understanding everything that is happening around the periphery. But what's right in front of the lens is nothing more than a stage set. It's a movie production. The lens and the actors and the main actor himself, the president, and that's what we know is going on. But for people at home, we're here to pull back the onion. That's
1: right. We're peeling back the onion. We're pulling back the curtain. And some of the players of late here at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue have changed. And the uh, perspective from behind the podium as a White House press secretary is very quintessential to creating the imagery and the communication standards for the president of the United States, Josh.
2: That's right. During the the eight Clinton years, Clinton had four press secretaries. And I'm Pleased to call all of them my friends, starting with Dee Dee Myers and then Mike McCurry and Joe Lockhart and then Jake Seward. And remember when McCurry sort of bore the brunt of, uh, of the government shutdown, and Joe Lockhart was brought in as the political press secretary to be the spokesman for the 1996 election campaign. And once that campaign uh, concluded, he then segued into being the formal White House press secretary. And he really did an incredible job for many years through the Lewinsky crisis, finally passing the baton off to Jake Seward for a few months before the end of the Clinton years.
1: He really was one of the most uh, important press secretaries of the modern era, and we are very lucky to have him with us today. Joe Lockhart, welcome to Polyoptics. Glad to be here. Josh King, uh, Joe Lockhart is not only a friend of yours, he's a former colleague in the White House. Uh, Talk to us for a second about what it it was like to uh, be a part of Joe's team and in uh, helping to to bring the president's message, President Clinton's message, to the American people.
2: You have to go back uh, to 1988, and Joe Lockhart, a guy who I met then, had the role that, similar to what I had uh, in 1992 to 1997, uh, traveling everywhere with then-candidate Mike Dukakis. And I really watched Joe from afar when he was doing that role, and I said, someday— I'm going to be able to do what he does, and then I've just uh, admired Joe's career ever since.
3: Well, thank you, Mr. King. That's why he's my friend. He says nice things about me.
1: When you guys think back to the Dukakis campaign, um, I've, there's got to be a few stories, Joe. I know you were uh, right there on one of the most iconic presidential campaign moments ever, uh, with a certain tank moment. You want to take us back there for a second? <laughs> yeah,
3: iconic is nice. I, 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 I appreciate that. It, you know, 20 years on, it has you know some like gravitas instead of just a total disaster. Um, <laughs> The 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 odd thing is, um, you know, it was something taken very seriously at at the campaign. The day before the tank, and it was someplace in Michigan, we had had an event at a uh, defense plant where Dukakis had been booed on the floor by workers, and that was a disaster. Uh, and it's, it was our defense week and national security week, and it got off to a disastrous start. So everybody who knew anything was uh, was dispatched to uh, uh, s- this place like in Michigan. Like homing Michigan. But there you go. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, so that you know the top people on the campaign were out there and we're going to make this look good and in fact he got in the tank uh, he he did the event and uh, i sort of did my job and went over and perused the network producers who all unanimously said, that's the best photo op Mike Dukakis has ever done. It's the best photo op we've seen in the campaign. And you guys have finally gotten your act together. And that image was, uh, unfortunately,
1: as it turned out, and we'll talk about how this sort of spiraled out of control, but this was a governor of Massachusetts who was running for president, didn't really have um, strong national security or defense credentials, and he's sitting in a tank with the operator
3: of the vehicle, and he's wearing a helmet. Yeah, the the, the helmet's the thing. and, And Josh... You know, I, I, I think Neil Flieger is a mutual friend of ours. Yes, and Neil is. is a very good guy and a very bright and a very successful uh, PR guy now. And I remember talking to Neil on the phone the night before, and he described the situation. And I said, you know, I guess that sounds all right. But I said, whatever you do, don't let him put the helmet on. that It'll look stupid. And this goes to the difference between people who understand the uh, imagery of politics and people who don't. Uh, Mike Dukakis was told don't put the helmet on, and when he got into the tank he realized that the only way he could hear the operator of the tank describing what he was doing was to put the helmet on, because that's where the little radio receiver was. And Mike Dukakis was under the impression that the purpose of the event was to learn more about this weapon system, Uh, when the purpose of the event had nothing to do with Mike Dukakis learning about uh, this tank. It was to provide a picture, and that's something that from day one of the campaign, he never understood. Again, extraordinarily bright guy, very capable administrator, was a great governor of Massachusetts, has gone on to serve on a number of government boards and done great public service, but didn't understand the um, the modus operandi of modern politics. And if you don't understand that, you're, you're not going to go very far. Because this was a photo op, right, guys? Yeah, well, absolutely.
2: Let's, let's not forget that that M1A1 has a top speed of 60 miles an hour, and they almost got to it on that tr- on that proving ground. If you remember the video, Dukakis is going at a pretty good clip. And if I were Dukakis, you don't want to uh, be vulnerable for a quick stop in a situation like that. And interestingly, one of the failures there, very similar to the failure of George Bush aboard the Abraham Lincoln, which is the presence of words. If the label Mike Dukakis hadn't been plastered on the forehead of that helmet, it would have Lent less to the Rocky Squirrel analogies as the mission accomplished did on the Abraham Lincoln. You think that's right, Jeff? Yeah, no,
3: I think it is. I, you know, and I think Adam and I have talked about this um, recently. Images are, are incredibly powerful, uh, and being able to create uh, an image in politics that uh, dwarfs any words you might say or any speech you might give or the power of a crowd, it, you know, it's magic uh, in a campaign. But it's got to be rooted in something. Um, the ad didn't come out until i think two or three weeks later the event was forgotten the ad took on a life of its own uh and it and again it played into something about dukakis that the public already believed which is what made it powerful that he was uh short diminutive not a man who could lead troops into battle um and um that was something that you know we were obviously trying to address in this event uh, I think it was a we went a step too far, uh, but uh, you I, you got to give Mr. Ailes uh, some credit and, and Atwater as the campaign manager there for seizing this and turning it and you know making us eat that for a long time. I want to get both of you to take us back to the the
1: Clinton White House. Uh, we're spending some time today on polyoptics, uh with with Joe Lockhart, listening to Sirius One Hundred um, and Ten X and One Thirty, and. What it is to communicate with the American people on behalf of the president of the United States and to be the president's closest advisor on on these communications issues is really more uh, a a double-sided task because for you, Joe Lockhart, the idea was to bring to the president um the questions and the the mood of the nation and help him connect and answer these issues and then also come back in the other direction and be able to speak for him When you've been in the room for things that maybe we can't know about, very sensitive uh, meetings with foreign leaders, uh, uh, so many things that you have to balance uh, and then give good counsel to the President of the United States, will you and Josh talk to us a little bit about how difficult that is taking into account all of the things we've already been talking about that you know so well when it comes to polyoptics?
3: Well, you know, listen, I think that it's uh, uh, it's, a... being the White House press secretary is first and foremost a great job. I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'll never do anything like it again. Uh, I'm not sure I ever want to do anything like it again, as far as its intensity and, and, and pressure. Um, but it's a very, it's a very difficult and at times complicated job. But you know, in the in the vein of what we're talking about here, um, I, I always, I always looked at it as a as a job as a translator. Uh, I, it was my job to know what the president wanted to say and where he was and how he felt about things and what was authentic with him as opposed to what we were trying to push out under his name and translate that to what the media was doing and as a as a proxy for where the public was and that's not always the case and that this is why the translation goes another way which is you know the, this president bill clinton actually knew where the public was um he had a he had an innate sense he didn't need the polls the polls helped reinforce that and the press often was someplace else but We don't have a system where you you abolish the press if you don't like them uh, as much as many presidents would like. So it was my job to translate what it is we were trying to do and to put it in language and and with the help of people like Josh, create images that would actually both speak to the public, but could find its way through the press filter where the press would accept it and rebroadcast it in, in a way that was acceptable to us. And that's a challenge because... If you could just um, you know come on serious radio every day and everyone in America would tune in, the president could just say, "I've got a pretty good idea what the problems are and what's on your mind, so let me just talk for a couple hours and we'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs> the press has a different idea the, the press decides what's important you know we were kidding beforehand about Charlie Sheen Charlie Sheen right now is the most ubiquitous guy in America because the press has decided they like it winning uh, and this is yeah and um you know, and he's got that figured out. Uh, so it's, it's, it's probably first and foremost a job where you've, you've got to be able to speak both languages, translate to each party, and then find a way to, uh, to, to make, it, make it where the two people can speak to each other. Or at least the president can speak and some facsimile of what he's saying gets to the public through the press and through that filter that's often so clogged and, um, uh, you know, uh, messed up.
2: Joe said earlier that uh, one of the most important ways a president needs to communicate to his constituents is to convey the message that I'm like you. And working for President Clinton, my job was incredibly easy because he was like them. And the things that I dreamed up were often designed to facilitate that connection, whether it was uh, a trip to on an aircraft carrier to meet Soldiers and young people who were coming up from towns like he came up from, and this was their opportunity to to break out of where they came from Uh, in schools, uh, on a on a sports field, um, in a high school band. This was I was just enabling the child and the curious person inside President Clinton to continue to connect, and that's what's so extraordinary in some ways about the eleven years of President Clinton's post presidency, because. Stripped of the lenses that were constantly on him, I think he's just been able to continue to do the exact same thing without a lot of the baggage that's associated with the constant pry of the of the press.
3: Yeah, I I I think the 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 filter and the lens on him has relaxed and has allowed the public to see something more than the caricature that becomes the Daily Washington reporting. Again, as much as you want to change the daily rules of engagement, you can't. Uh, The press is the press; they they are free and. They will focus on things, however important they are or however trivial they are, and you've just got to figure out a way to do your best. Um, You know, Mike Deaver and the Republicans used to think the picture was everything. Words didn't matter. The president could get up there and read the phone book. The press that night could say the president got up today and read the phone book but got it wrong, and here are the five ways he got it wrong. But if he looked good, and there were a lot of good phone books, and the public was into phone books, they, they felt it was good. I... I un- I take a lot out of that. I don't particularly agree with it. I think the words do matter, too. But the words have to marry with the image. They can't overwhelm it. They can't be dwarfed by it. They have to complement it. And, and uh, you know, I'd been out of uh, politics for a little while, living overseas. And when I got back, uh, I quickly uh, uh, got acquainted with these kind of signature Clinton events, which gave you every possible cue you could, including... A huge banner uh, over him, which time which generally was four or five words that said, "Here's what we're talking about today." In case you didn't realize what we're doing, this is it. Yeah, that's our sweet spot right there. And and that's, um, I mean, that's. um, And Josh, uh, you're too uh, modest to take all the credit for it. I don't. I don't know who else was involved, but this. These are the kind of conversations I'd have with Josh, which is, you know, how are we going to take this complicated thing? And make it America's great today, or you know, America leads by education, you know, and and so I do think that we pulled, we learned an awful lot from the Republicans in the eighty and and uh, Ronald Reagan and Mike Deaver and all that, and they're very bright and accomplished. But I think um, in the nineties, um, uh, uh, particularly with Clinton, we we, we, we married some words um, and, and found a place in the visuals for words that I think was quite effective. My experience uh, in the Bush
1: White House, which really built a lot on, on what you're talking about, Joe, and, and Josh, a lot of what you accomplished, uh, was taking that uh, that message, distilling it, making it something that was digestible, that was appreciated, and making sure that those images overall match that message, that you were bringing something that, that made sense, that didn't take a lot of reckoning to to understand, Um you know, and, and it's very interesting. Sometimes people ask me, Joe, uh, you know, when you're conceiving of a presidential event, um, what comes first, chicken and egg, is are you looking for an event centered around something that's visually stimulating and therefore you would go there? Or, you know, is there a policy initiative and then we start looking for, you know, like you said, there was defense week or you've we're, we're, got a message for the week and then you start trying to figure out places that can
3: yeah, listen, help leverage. I, I, listen, I think if, if Adam and Josh ruled the world, it would be, <laughs> uh, we found five great pictures for this week. Give me some policy right. that I can <laughs> fill it in. Adam and Josh don't rule the world. It's, it, it, is, it is more, uh, in, in fact, the other way around, which is the policy shops, the communications, the press people all sort of sit down and say, you know, here's the schedule for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. And then it becomes... The um, the advance in production and the picture people's job to go find something that that visually tells and and they're often hamstrung by the fact that they're told by the political people it's got to be in Michigan, and by the policy people it's got to be a place where uh, charter schools are successful, and we haven't done we haven't done anything where we've cut money and it's so the only three counties in Michigan work because we cut money for other people you know and so it, it makes it it makes it more of a challenge but. You know, maybe in then you know maybe in the future you guys will rule the world i have a I have
1: a question for you josh and <laughs> and, and and I want to know what you think about this and and Joe, you've got a way in here too um, in two thousand and one uh, when when this nation was attacked on nine eleven it was a very powerful uh, and very emotional time for all of us, and it was a time when president Bush in uh, his popularity and his leadership uh, reached uh, its highest point in terms of favorability with the American people. And I think many people feel that uh, <laughs> that his communication around that was very authentic. He was very true to himself in those moments. And in one moment in particular, uh, of course, just after 9-11 down in lower Manhattan, um, when the president uh, unscriptedly just took up a, a megaphone and spoke to a crowd of first responders. There's no substitute for that kind of authenticity. What did you all think about that? And, and what does that tell you about the lessons that you learned with President Clinton about, you know, not planning too much and just letting a president connect
2: with people? The firefighter's name was Bob Beckwith. And I actually work today uh, steps from where that happened. And I walk past that every day. And, and I I don't rarely a day goes by when i don't think about those few days uh, after 9-11 and it's to look at the administration's response visually to that is a fascinating exercise because remember you begin in sarasota florida at the booker elementary school when andy card whispered to president bush that we're under attack and a statement was made in a, a adjacent room and then air force one takes off for Barksdale Air Force Base and Offutt Air Force Base, and finally makes it back to Washington. The White House press office puts out a picture of Dick Cheney and his staff in the uh, POC, the Presidential Emergency Operations Center. And then the president goes up to ground zero and stands with Beckwith on top of the pile. And I, there was never a more honest, genuine, powerful moment visually of the presidency that in my lifetime. Um... And then I actually watched as, they, as the Bush administration got more confident in their, uh, in their message and tried to get larger and larger with their events, which the year after 9-11 was a speech with a backdrop of the Statue of Liberty announcing the Department of Homeland Security in front of Mount Rushmore, and you could continue on to 2005 to the cleanup of Katrina on Jackson Square when New Orleans had no lights. So I I think it started as incredibly genuine and then it got a little grandiose when in, when other presidents might have said this moment calls for a Oval Office address keep it at that without moving Air Force 1 around the country.
4: Oh well, yeah,
3: you know, it's interesting. I have a kind of an odd perspective on a uh, uh, visual perspective on September 11th because I was sitting in Port Douglas, Australia when it happened with Bill Clinton. Um I just it was one of these things where he had said to me as we were leaving the White House, uh, You got to come travel with me. And where do you want to go? And I said, I'd never been to Australia. So he said, I'll call you when I'm going to Australia. He got a trip to Australia. He called. I went on this trip. September 11th happens. And I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm generally with Josh, um, which, you know, watching it even from afar, uh, it looked uh, overly confused. And even as a diehard partisan Democrat, I was pulling for the president to land someplace and stand and tell us that everything was going to be okay, not that uh, we just didn't know. Um, and I felt uh, similar to Josh that through all of his advisors and everything, he single-handedly turned that around um, at ground zero uh, with what had to have been unscripted. I, I, I just can't imagine they were bright enough to have choreographed that. And that's what separates you know, um, presidents from people like us. I mean, I, listen, I— I have no shortage of admiration for myself and my skills, um, uh, as you know, and yours and Josh's and all the people that I work with in politics. But being president is a whole lot harder than being a press secretary or being, you know, the the visual guru at the White House. And successful ones are ones that, you know, when they get handed um, a a moment uh, or they walk into a moment and they see it and they seize it when no one else sees it. and Reagan could do that. Clinton could do that. Bush did it, uh, not that often. Um, but you know, I, th- I, I you know, I, I always felt like he was overly produced, um, at, particularly at the beginning. And uh, the, it was like the staff was afraid to let him just you know let it let it all hang out a little bit. And I know sometimes that created problems. But you know, if you look back at the Clinton administration, there were certainly more gaffes made by Clinton than there were by Bush, I think, in the first four or five years. But part of that was because Clinton's best moments were when he wandered, he took the script and said, this is pretty good, but I got another idea. Yep. And eight times out of 10, um, that it would be spectacular. And you'd sit there in, in awe and say, in a million years, I never would have thought of adding that little piece, and that's what makes him special. Two times out of 10, it would fall and <laughs> create a week of problems uh but for for my purposes, they were worth it because that other stuff was magic and and it was created by him. um All of us could sort of you know throw our little ingredients into the recipe and create uh, a moment where he might grasp it and take it to uh you know sort of iconic levels. but it's up to the guy you know and and you know you 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 compare uh uh, uh George w. Bush with his dad, who had similar moments. And you know the the son, um, you know, seized several of them. I think you know maybe missed a couple of them along the way. His dad was never able to do that. And didn't he? The guy was bright, accomplished, greatest resume probably in the history of uh, the the White House. Upon arriving at the White House, and he seemed um, to not see these moments and to not understand the power. of of these moments. And it hurt him. I mean, it it was the difference in many ways between being a one-term and a two-term president.
1: Joe Lockhart, uh, I want to thank you very much for taking your time to join us on Polyoptics. Uh, We are lucky to have you, and uh, we sincerely appreciate your time. We hope to have you back again someday. I'm happy to be here, and I'll be here whenever Josh tells me to.
2: Joe, thanks so much for joining
1: us. Thanks, Josh. This is Polyoptics on POTUS. I'm Adam Delmar in Washington. Next up on Polyoptics is Bush White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer. Josh, he played a very unique role through the campaign in 2000 and then, of course, had the podium when America changed forever on 9-11-2001.
2: That's right, Adam. He started, if you recall, as the press secretary for Elizabeth Dole's campaign when the Senator Dole tried to made it make an early run for president and then he connected with the bush campaign and for guys like Ari, like Dee myers during clinton's years a uh, wonderful opportunity to recast the role of press secretary with a brand new president everything is fresh and new there is for two three four months a honeymoon period in which the press secretary is feeling his her way through the white house press corps creating this relationship and then of course as you know on september 11th everything changed. You know, one of the things that
1: I always thought was so interesting about Ari Fleischer's tenure was he was sort of an every guy. He was balding, he had glasses, he was a New Yorker who had uh, that New York attitude and, and really let it be known what he loved. And a lot of what he loved was New
2: York and the Yankees. And there were a lot of interesting issues that happened in those first six, seven, eight months of the Bush administration that Ari had to adjust to. Remember, the announcement about President Bush's views on stem cell research came out of Crawford, Texas. Ari had to do all of the politics and all of the press related to that, put him in a very complex situation for, for a new White House press secretary.
1: Ari Fleischer, welcome to PolyOptics.
4: My pleasure. Glad to be here.
1: You know, uh, being a White House press secretary is probably one of the most challenging, interesting, and I would guess um, rewarding jobs uh, that one could have in politics. Uh, I had a bit of a vantage point, having served in the Bush administration and the communications team after you, to see what it was for Dana Perino. How rewarding and just difficult was it for you to be the voice of the President of the United States?
4: Well, shoot, it's easy to, you know, one of those short nine to five jobs, no pressure, Really easy reporters throwing softballs at you.
1: <laughs> it's 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 just uh, it's 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 a siege, isn't it?
4: It is the best job I'll ever have. It, it, it's uh, it's a paradoxical job too, Adam. It's the most wonderful thing I've ever done. The most intellectually stimulating job I'll ever have. While well, simultaneously, the most grind out, grind just burn out, grind you down, pressure filled job. And I love both sides of it. I love the pressure. And uh, I knew I was burning out eventually, but I, I loved it every day I did
1: it. You know, I talked to some friends in the media who remember your time at the podium very fondly. And one of the things that uh, that has been repeated to me uh, over the last few days in preparing to talk to you in this interview was... Uh, that that Ari really seemed to get it, that it was as much for him about being an honest broker between the press and representing where uh, the questions and concerns and thoughts of, of the media and the American people were as much as it was representing the president. Did you feel that way? Was that a very uh, double uh, sort of burning the candle at both ends for you in doing that job?
4: Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons it's a burnout job. You, you know, the, the stress of the job is you go into the Oval Office, and you're privileged to be in the summit meetings with the president, congressional leadership meetings, cabinet meetings. You hear almost everything that the president does. And then you have to be very careful when you go to the podium about how much you will reveal, because the president doesn't want everything to be revealed. Some things are decisions that are not yet made. Other things may be very sensitive. They may involve foreign leaders. The press, on the other hand, wants to know it all. They they would love to have an Oval Office cam and have a 300 Uh, 65-day-a-year camera that broadcasts everything. And so you have to walk that line between representing the president, sharing everything that you possibly can, but never sharing so much that the president says, sorry, you're not coming to these meetings anymore. And that's the balance. That's the fine line that you have to find when you're the press secretary. And the press wants, wants it all. The president doesn't. And the press secretary is the one guy caught halfway.
1: You know, our mission at Polyoptics and what we strive to do is talk about um, the imagery in the theater and the elements of visual communication that are at the heart of uh, the presidency and our political leadership. The Bush administration, in my opinion, uh, partly revolutionized but really um, built a very high bar for what it meant to communicate with the American people on all manner of issues. The most substantive and also the most emotional where you paid very close attention to when and how and where certain things were communicated and how the president presented his message. How important was that for you when you were trying to calibrate in this sort of new age? Because you really did come on the scene at a time when the media was, was reborn in a way and you were at the heart of it.
4: And what really happened, too, is on September 11th, and for for a considerable period of time afterwards, the, 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 the country was riveted to every word that the president said. My briefings were covered live, not only on the cable shows, but on all the networks for the first week or so after September 11th. And it was a time of consequence, major consequence, and, and tremendous emotion for the country and for people at the White House, myself included. And so every time you spoke, you just had this sense of it's not just a briefing. You're not only talking to reporters, but you're talking to family members who are still looking for their loved ones in the rubble at the World Trade Center or Pennsylvania or the Pentagon. Uh, You're talking to foreign leaders, wondering what the United States is going to do about it. And then, of course, when we went to war, you're trying to send a message of resolve and strength and confidence in the military, all the while knowing that you have an anxious country that's worried about the burden and the price of war. So, all of those things run through your mind when you take the podium as press secretary. And certainly for the president, he went to visit a mosque shortly after 911 to send a signal to everybody that terrorists are enemies, not Muslims. And he was cognizant always of the communications aspect of his job. And I think it's one of the reasons the American people really loved him right after september 11th he had ninety percent job approval he really i think found that right line of being a determined tough president who was going to go after the people who did this to us but in, in a way that made the american people proud
1: you know when you talk about sending a signal that's that's really at the heart of what we uh, define polyoptics to be this idea that um where a message is delivered and In how people see it quite literally through the lens of a television camera or through uh, those still images that uh, are on the cover of newspapers means so much to people because the image is oftentimes what they remember in combination with the message. Um, I was wondering if you'd take us back for a second. Uh, 9-11 in the days just following the president, you uh, were down in lower Manhattan. Uh, at Ground Zero, uh, we, I want to play for a second, uh, perhaps one of the most iconic moments of President Bush's presidency.
0: As we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens, So what was
1: what was going on for you, Ari Fleischer? What was your viewpoint on that moment in history?
4: Well, I was about 10 feet away from the president, kind of on the bottom of that fire truck where he was standing. He was standing on a burnt-out fire truck. And the whole moment was totally spontaneous. And frankly, I missed the, the, the gravity of that. Uh, a reporter turned to me and he said, this is going to go down as one of the most famous moments, one of the most famous things any president has said. And... I guess I was just so caught up in, you know, that's the city I was born in, and I've been to Windows on the World many times just to stand there, to be in the thick of it, to be in the middle of it. I missed the the drama of what the president said in that very moment, and only later did I get a full appreciation for what it meant to the country and how powerful it was. I, I think seeing it on TV instantly brought it to me. Being there in the thick of it, though, somehow, that didn't land on me with the same impact it landed on others. I surely appreciated it and and saw it later, but uh, I was right there, heard it all, and it sure did turn out to be an iconic moment.
1: You know, it was one of those moments that, and and please correct me, because you were, as you said, right there. Uh, It was one of those organic moments. The president... Uh, and I can speak to this because I, I know him too, He's just that kind of guy. He, he gravitates towards people. He has uh, a unique um, antenna and appreciation for how other people are feeling, especially when he's in close proximity to them. Uh, there was nothing staged about what went on there, was there?
4: Oh, no, the whole thing was totally spontaneous. He wasn't even supposed to speak. The motorcade pulled in. And it was just mayhem. It was just a a, a wild crowd scene. The Secret Service usually doesn't allow things like that to take place. But this time they they just did. They capitulated, basically, knowing uh, the the emotions of those involved, firefighters and policemen. And and there had been no plan for the president to speak. And he, he just got the yearning to do so. And what was fascinating in listening to that clip again is when the president says, I can hear you, and the world hears you. And pretty soon, the people who did this will hear from all of us. It's so interesting because he made the American people the actor, the subject, not himself. He said, the world hears all of you. And that, I think, is what made that such a moment, where the President of the United States removed himself as being the actor and said, it's the country that is speaking. It's through your voices, you firemen, you policemen, you rescue workers the world will hear from you and that empowered the american people and that made the american people know that the president heard their voice felt their pain and was going to take the action that the american people demanded to be taken
1: the emotion that was running so high uh in the days weeks months after 9 11 2001 uh reached and i i don't mean to be trite when i say this almost a fever pitch Uh, when you uh, and and others brought the President of the United States back to New York uh, to be a part of a really important ritual uh, in in the World Series. Can you walk us up to what the decisions were and how you ended up being a part of bringing the President to the World Series in the third game? Well, there there was a
4: lot of speculation about what the president would throw out the first pitch for the World Series, which is something that sometimes American presidents do, and certainly George Bush being a baseball guy, uh, everybody wondered if he would do it, and he couldn't wait to do it. And he, the next day, came into my office and said to me, no matter what happens in my presidency, that will be one of the highlights of it.
0: Please direct your attention now to the area in front of the pitchers' mound for tonight's Ceremonial first pitch. And please welcome the President of the United States. Are
1: you are uh, a big baseball fan. I know that about you. I know that this is your team. It was the World Series. But yep. for Americans, though, this was about getting back to our way of life and our Commander-in-Chief, our President, being there to help us do that. Am, am I right? Is that the he, way you saw it?
4: You nailed it. And that pitch, which was a a perfect strike that he threw right over the heart of the plate with a little bit of heat on it, uh, was a metaphor for our country. He, he, He threw the perfect pitch. And then when the crowd just burst into USA, USA, about one month after the attack on our country, almost two months after the attack on our country, it just made us feel as Americans good to be Americans again. You know, we, we have been sucker punched, and you almost kind of bend over, and you're holding your gut after September 11th. And we were hurting as a nation. And just to be able to belt out, didn't matter if you were a Democrat or Republican or Independent, you got to cheer USA, USA, thanks to that pitch. It reminded us so much about why we love this country, why we feel good about this country, and why we all Americans love to cheer for this country. That's what took place that night. We Americans got to cheer for our country and shout out those three letters, USA. That's what that pitch did.
1: You're listening to Polyoptics on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Sirius 110, XM 130. were joined uh, in a very special interview with former White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer uh, talking about his experiences uh, after 9-11 and what it was to help be the bridge between the United States of America and their president. Uh, Ari, I want to ask you, after some of these uh, very formative and early experiences that we just talked about during your tenure in the administration, how did it begin to change your view of getting the president out there and creating events that helped to carry that message, not just across the country, but around the world?
4: Well, you know, at that point as a nation that was at war, heading toward war, so much of the events really did become on uh, military basis to make families feel good. Uh, sadly, to console those who lost their sons or their daughters in war, their husbands or wives at war. And a lot of the international diplomacy, the the meetings were of major consequence. The decisions that were made were dramatic and important. And it it became in many ways a heavy presidency. Um, because world events were so tough and of course then the war in iraq all of that added up to uh... serious days the white house is generally a serious place to begin with but some eras are marked by less of a moment of consequence september eleventh two wars an anthrax attack those are the type of events that took place when i was the press secretary and you know from my point of view the world is a safer, better place as a result of the decisions that President Bush made and his willingness to, to do what needed to be done to take on terrorism.
1: You know, when when I served in the Bush administration uh, in the final two years as the deputy communications director, I had occasion to, uh, following your footsteps, we threw out some first pitches. <laughs> uh, we did some addresses to the nation, which are some of the most important and uh, most intimate conversations that can be had between a president and the American people. And when I think about polyoptics and this idea that the the visual imagery that's associated with those communications being so critical, the calibration of, of that image being so um, important to helping people receive the message and, and come to their own conclusions about what the message may be, it makes me think about a couple of instances that were, uh, really in in the heart of your tenure, and one of them was uh, a stem cell decision. This predates um, 9-11, but it was one of the most important, to my mind, decisions early in the president's uh, uh, first term that he made. Uh, I want to play it for our listeners and have you take us back there to what we know as the governor's house uh, on the president's ranch in Crawford, Texas.
0: I have concluded that we should allow federal funds to be used for research on these existing stem cell lines where the life and death decision has already been made. Leading scientists tell me research on these 60 lines has great promise that could lead to breakthrough therapies and cures. So this was an incredibly
1: contentious decision, Ari Fleischer, that the president was making about promising technology and, and it was an issue of life. Uh, it, it related to the abortion debate and yet this address to the nation, the first in his presidency, mm-hmm. did not take place from the White House and it didn't take place you know, from the Oval Office. Tell us where it was and, and how that came about and why it was decided that this is how you would first uh, tackle an address like this.
4: Well, the speech was made from, as you point out, the uh, the governor's house, which is the name of one of the buildings on the president's ranch in Crawford, Texas. And the timing was such because this, the way the law was written, the president had to make a decision about whether or not he would continue a Clinton administration law uh, ruling that allowed for federal funding of stem cell research. And that ruling uh, from Clinton was going to be over. He had to make that call, and he really focused on this intently in the summer of 2001 and then he was back home in August of 2001 and he had to make this decision And, and so he broadcast from his ranch uh... just the optics weren't chosen to be the ranch versus the white house it was just he was going to be down there and he by virtue of the schedule wanted to address the public from where he was he wasn't going to fly back to washington to make this announcement Uh, It's also one of those issues where the optics was he was home, and this is an issue, a moral moral issue, where people wrestle with these types of moral issues, often in their homes, and medical science has changed so many things that families wonder about with how do you extend life, what decisions children make about their parents, and of course, George Bush being pro-life, how do you deal with this issue, which has so much promise and hope, Uh, or at least we, we thought it did, and that's the, the the story behind it he made you know, the rest of the nation his first ever from crawford
1: yeah it's 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 interesting to me you know I mean, you'll recall uh and it's not that it was a huge huge thing that that, that that lasted uh because we had other events that that came upon us not long after that but the president was already being lambasted by some for being on vacation and he's down in crawford and um he he really i i felt uh, said look uh You know, I'm doing this statement from here, as you said, because I've spent so much of my time pondering these decisions and working on this issue from here. I want to let you know uh, how I'm feeling and what I've decided for the nation. Um, But, Ari, it it preceded um, much more uh, serious addresses to the nation that would come in short order, uh, one of which uh, I think you will probably never forget.
0: Today, our fellow citizens... Our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts.
1: And so 9-11 from uh, the Oval Office. Uh, Talk to us about that for a second. That is probably never uh, something you think of as a press secretary, and yet there you were bringing the President of the United States in an act of war to the American people in, what, just hours after the attack, really?
4: Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, on September 11th, instead of going into my usual spot on Air Force One, I I spent the whole day in the president's cabin and took notes on everything he did and he said. And privately, the president was saying to the staff aboard, this is war. That day, though, he only spoke to the American people of reassurance, and he did not speak of war until the next day, September 12th, publicly, when he used that word war for the first time. But certainly it marked uh, just a major turning of a chapter where so much had been domestic focus for almost 10 years with the end of the cold war to september 11th and then crisis and death and attacks on our soil changed everything for our country and the president had to address that and it forever changed him in terms of what he did as president it changed our nation and as we talked earlier it really reminded him of his higher obligation to inform the american people of what he's doing and why and that speech that you just played was a major part of that
1: you know ari it was less than a month later though when uh the speech that in my mind besides the uh the inaugural addresses which i think are significant for every president but uh, there was a, uh, an address to the nation that you were a very large part of it was some 20 minutes before the president spoke to the nation and the world about what America was going to do to uh, bring justice uh, to the people who had attacked uh, our homeland, you spoke to the press in the briefing room and I think it caught many people off guard on that day and then just moments later, the president had these
0: words for the American people. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. That speech was from the treaty room
1: uh, in the residence. Uh, Talk to me for a second about the president sent the United States of America to war uh, that night, and again, we we did not see the president in the Oval Office, but it made an enormous impact, the choice of where and how he delivered that message.
4: Well, that's right, And, and that was a decision based on some of the previous Speeches and statements that president had made presidents had made in there that President Bush alluded to in his remarks about a nation at war and a nation at peace uh that office used to be the office for American Presidents before the West Wing and the Oval Office were built, and he chose to make his remarks there rather than the place of your more typical presidential remarks from the Oval Office. I think it was a sign of the magnitude of ordering the military and announcing to the country that we were responding to September 11th and that the nation was going to war.
1: It's been a real pleasure uh, having you take the time to talk to us on Polyoptics. Thanks much, Ari.
4: I'm happy to be with you. Bye-bye
1: now. Bye-bye.
2: You can't let a important moment pass without making mention of the passing of one of the great Washington institutions. And over the past... Period that we've been saying farewell to David Broder, columnist of the Washington Post. What I've seen mostly has been the commentary of people who worked with him, colleagues in journalism, the assistants who came up through his office doing his research, the hosts who had him on their show, and all of the people he touched in the journalism business. But it's important also to think for a person like me. Who first met Dave Broder in 1988 working for the Simon for president campaign and the Dukakis for president campaign that to me uh, who was working in my first political effort Broder represented a sex symbol of politics in action yeah he was it right he was the ultimate critic the ultimate film if you were thinking of your events as movies he was the ultimate film critic so if he showed up at your event and you had any inkling that a mention of your polyoptics, of the drama that you were creating for your candidate, might garner a mention in David Broder's column, well, that was just about the best thing that could ever happen. Well, he
1: was, when you say he's a fixture, I mean, people need to understand
2: that David
1: Broder was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who worked in the
2: industry for over 40 years. He literally had seen it all. I think it's fair to say that the way David Broder wrote about politics shaped in very important ways the way political practitioners like you and me, Adam, actually put on events, because Broder would have the ability to fly out to Des Moines 48, 72 hours before an event and talk to real people across a diner counter or in a barbershop or at a restaurant, and he would weave those personal stories into his analysis of what a particular candidate or president was saying at their event. And the, the way that evolved for people like you and me, not in 88, but into 92, 96, 2000, 2004, and 2008, was to say people aren't going to do as much shoe leather reporting as David Broder did. So let's fold that all into our event stage. Let's find the real people. Let's cast the real stories. Let's make that whole drama unfold on the stage in the actual event that we have so that for reporters who might not have been as diligent as David Broder in succeeding decades, we would package it all up for them. And Broder taught us how to do that.
1: Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, David Broder was a prolific writer. He was uh, an author of eight books or co-author of eight books. He did write a book that uh, I really enjoy, uh, The System, The American Way of Politics at the Breaking Point. He he authored this book in 1996. And towards the very beginning of it, Josh, he uh, details a moment that I think still gives you heart palpitations. Um, and it was this healthcare speech. It was really the critical mass of Clinton's first term capital being spent on health care reform. And he did a joint address to the Congress. Pick it up there and tell us what was Broder talking about and what actually happened that night?
2: Well, it's like it was yesterday for me. And Broder's point, I think, was to uh, bring up for understanding and appreciation that president, Bill Clinton's particular uh, skill at communication. Remember, it was the beginning of the president's first push for for his health care program and to launch the effort outside of the usual calendar of joint addresses to Congress at the Capitol building, he convened uh, or he he went up and spoke to a joint session of Congress. And uh, it was the same setting as a State of the Union, uh, but a totally different speech and and a single subject. And as he got up to the podium and went through all the facets of moving into the Capitol building, of being announced into the room, of giving their text of his remarks to the president, to the vice president and the speaker of the house, he took a deep breath and looked into his teleprompter and realized that something was wrong.
4: My fellow Americans, tonight we come together to write a new chapter in the American story.
2: Our forebears now, the problem that President Clinton was facing at that very moment was that while he was giving the, his pat introductory moments to the speech, in fact, the, tel- the speech that was written for this health care joint session of Congress was not on his teleprompter screen. What had happened was that in their effort to test the teleprompter, the operators had preloaded the prior January's State of the Union address so that when a president is speaking to 200 million Americans and whoever else is watching around the world and is depending on the actual lines to scroll in front of his screen, he was seeing stuff that was eight months old. It's just unbelievable to me.
1: As a communications professional, this is the worst case scenario. This
2: is like your communications meltdown. But President Clinton did not miss a beat. Well, remember what Joe Lockhart told us, Adam, that eight times out of 10... The president would often ad-lib what was prepared for him anyway, and it was usually outstanding. And so uh, in this case, he didn't have to ad-lib because he had, he knew intuitively what he was going to say, and he just continued to issue the speech line for line, word for word, as written, until the teleprompter operators could scroll past the old speech and catch up to him and catch up to his train of thought it was an incredible moment of political theater and those that were up on capitol hill with him the white house aides who had set up the event realized very quickly what going what, what went on and one of my dear friends whose name i won't use here sort of put his head in his hand and said this is the worst thing that has ever happened and another guy said well uh there's been a couple worse things in in world history and Remember, the president is handling this beautifully, and it was, and that was the case. But the reality was that this was
1: a story that really got brought to light in a contextual way by a first-class political reporter in David Broder, and helped people to understand really that Bill Clinton uh, was an, a truly remarkable man, an amazing communicator, and somebody who helped
2: define really the high bar for what presidential communication could be. That's right. It wasn't only about Clinton, certainly, that over a 40-year career David Broder talked about. He gave us the -the behind-the-scenes understanding of how politicians try to communicate and connect with voters over four decades and across 50 states. And as has been adequately written there wasn't a place that he didn't touch there wasn't a political bar that he d- didn't visit and there wasn't a person that he didn't talk to who didn't give him an earful about what american politics ought to be and that was adequately refra- reflected in all of his columns
1: polyoptics serious 110 X m one thirty. We are so glad to have you join us and be a part of this conversation. Josh King, this is a true pleasure to be able to talk to you and unpack the elements of political communication for our listeners here on Potus. Uh, I want to ask you one thing. It's a personal question. When you think about every day uh, what it is to to wake up and meet that mission of of helping the President of the United States, is it something you think you'd want to do again?
2: Adam, I think I would never wanted to have stopped doing it. Uh, you're stopped a little bit by the, uh, by the pendulum swings of American politics and the need to get on with your career. But it, it, to be able to think about how to translate White House messages and the presidential mission to an American public and even a, a global population that wants to see these views expressed not only in words but in stories and pictures is is really for me the ultimate job there are so many great
1: practitioners of polyoptics communicators and every day we are seeing a new story and narrative unfold well thank you again for joining us on potus here on sirius xm and for joining us at polyoptics for josh king i'm adam belmar in washington
0: politics of the united states for the people of the united states sirius 110 xm 130 and the sirius xm app for smartphones